Thank you for listening to Truth in Life, a concise Christian belief series. This class was taught on a Sunday morning at Christ the Word Church because we believe that God's Word is truth and that His truth should shape our lives. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. Amen. All right. So this week definitely builds upon last week. Last week's topic was knowledge of God. So this whole module is on attributes, and we're starting with the incommunicable attributes. Almost every week uh, of my material is, is, I'm sorry, is communicable stuff. So obviously knowledge is communicable, right? Did I say incommunicable a minute ago? Seems like what I said, yeah. You guys know things, so (laughs) knowledge is communicable. Um, so this builds upon, about, upon that. This week we're talking more about the future, so God's knowledge of the future. Just a preview so you know where I'm headed. God does know the future. Okay. All right, we're on the same page. A minute or two of review. So last week we used this word... epistemology. Remember that word? So that's, it's, kind of, it's how do we know what we know? We, we spent a lot of time saying, how do we know something as opposed to simply believing it? Which is fine. Believing something that you don't know is, is fine. But we discussed how do we know that we know something? How do we really know that we know it? It's not just opinion. It's not just faith. We had the triangle. Um, does anybody remember the, the corners of that triangle? Okay. Okay. Anybody else? Thoughts? Yep. Yep. There was a J up here. Justified. I forget which the T and the B. I forget which corner I had those on, but it doesn't matter. Justified true belief. And in the middle was knowledge. So if you have all of those, then, then you know it. And that separates knowledge from belief or opinion. So this is epistemology. It's, it's philosophical stuff. I think it's interesting. I think it's helpful as far as it goes. It does, the whole JTB thing does fall short in some ways. Um, it's, it's fallen on hard times recently. A lot of philosophers today reject it completely. But I think it's helpful, so we spent time discussing that. We really focused on propositional knowledge, right? So we know that, all the that things. We know facts. We know that. Um, okay, we, and we said God knows all of that stuff. But then we said God knows you. Okay. He knows me. He enters into covenant with his people. He loves us. He cares for us. His providence surrounds us um, and upholds us, all of this stuff. So we started and said God knows that, and he knows all the that's, but he also knows us, covenant knowing. So that was encouraging, right? I hope it was, and it stirs up reverence and awe and humility and confidence. Yep, AJ? Um, the study of knowledge. It's big, it's broad. I mean, you could take a whole college course on it. 
probably a series of college courses on it. We very quickly get over my head and we were pretty much there last week, so that's about all I'll have to say about it. Um, but we ended, hopefully it was an encouraging end that we said, God knows you. It's not always encouraging. God knows everyone. And so if you're an unrepentant, if you're in an unrepentant state and you're not in Christ, then that's not a good thing. But for us, I trust it is a good thing. So this week we'll, we'll hit on a little bit more philosophical stuff, but we have more scripture. And so I'm excited about the material. That's just review. Um, I already answered this in my preview, right? Does God know the future? Yes. Um, we said he is omniscient. He is all-knowing. And now we're saying that that omniscience does extend into the future. So this is not, everyone nodded when I said that and laughed and, you know, because we're all on the same page. But this has not been a foregone conclusion among all Christians. Not throughout church history and not now either. So looking around, I know most of you. Um, so I'm not surprised that we're on the same page. But let's talk about these three different categories um, of different people groups and how they would answer, does God know the future? Augustinianism. Okay, this is where we land as a church. This is the reformed position. Okay, this is the position of a whole bunch of Christians throughout history, but Augustine, St. Augustine, in case you're unfamiliar, he was, he lived a long, long time ago. So I have to, I was well into my adult years before I started really getting a, a picture of the flow of, of history, this sort of thing. Anybody who was more than like 200 years old, I lumped them all together. Well, don't do that. Augustine is really old, like 400s in that range, okay? He was one of the church fathers, and he helped us codify a whole bunch of this stuff. And what he taught and what we believe is that God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, and he foreknows whatever comes to pass. Thoughts or questions about this? When you say 400, it's not 400 years ago, but 400 years. Yes. Yes, exactly. Okay, so we believe this. We believe that God foreordains and foreknows. Those are similar, but they're not the same, okay? So as we move down through these other categories, I think this will become more clear. So right now, we'll come back to this. I'll just say for now, though, if you can, read Augustine, okay? I like to give a little plug here for reading the old stuff. It was so helpful to me. Um, it's been a long time. I should go back and read it. But um, read Augustine's Confessions. Read City of God, especially those who are under the age of 30. I think your 20s, it's a great time to read important stuff like this. So read Augustine, you will be forever changed and it will be good. Um, so let's, let's move on. We'll come right back to it, but let's talk about the Arminian position. Um, everybody here knows Arminians. 
you may be unfamiliar with the term, but you are surrounded by Arminian Christians. This is the prevailing viewpoint currently, certainly in America and probably everywhere. Okay, so the Arminian position, I gave that one, one thumbs up and one thumbs down. Um, they say God does foreknow, but he has not foreordained. Do you guys get that distinction there? When, when God foreordains, he is decreeing, he's determining what comes to pass. Foreknowing is just this knowledge of it, okay? Hopefully, separating the two is not something that you naturally want to do. I don't think that's a helpful thing. It's a good distinction to make, but the Reformed position doesn't, doesn't really firmly separate these, whereas the Armenian position does, okay? Um, Arminians believe there is a fundamental contradiction of human freedom if God ordains whatever comes to pass. They believe there's a fundamental contradiction of human freedom if God ordains whatever comes to pass. So they rightly understand that Scripture teaches some sort of divine sovereignty. Okay? It's inescapable, really. And, and Arminians are Christians. Can we say that? I mean, we're surrounded by Arminian Christians. I think they're, they're wrong here, but they love the Lord and they know their Bible, a lot of them. And so they see all those passages about sovereignty and foreordaining and so forth, and they come up with, I think, hopefully this is a fair statement, they come up with a, with a clever workaround for it. Okay? But they do understand Scripture teaches divine sovereignty, so, but they can't, they, they can't reconcile this, their elevation of human freedom. That's, they need that. Okay, so they would probably say God has not ordained everything, but he does have exhaustive knowledge of us and our circumstances, the laws that govern the universe. He has exhaustive knowledge of all of that. So he hasn't foreordained it, but because he knows and understands all of that, he can basically predict the future. Um, I don't think that resonates with what I know from the Bible, but that's, that's that position, okay? Then there's the Socinian position. Two thumbs down for the Socinians. Um, this was a 16th century um, Italian guy, or a couple Italian guys who were responsible for this, and it, ca it caused a lot of disruption in the church back then, um, and basically they, they don't feel the urge to reconcile that libertarian free will. Remember, that's what I'm suggesting the Arminians do. They're elevating libertarian free will, but they see all the passages about sovereignty, so they've come up with a solution. The Socinians don't feel the urge to reconcile that libertarian free will with the scripture teaching sovereignty. So maybe in a sense they're more consistent um, Maybe they, maybe they agree with the Calvinists that the only basis for believing that God knows everything is that he foreordained it. And notice the word therefore. Augustine taught that these are tied. See, the word therefore, I think, is significant. 
so maybe the Socinians are more um, consistent in that regard. But it's heresy, really. They're uh, on a whole bunch of levels. Their main heresy was, yeah. Micah, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to ask, you, you said that we know a lot of Armenians likely. So how do we talk to them about, where do you point somebody to say, you know, God foreordained it, that's why he foreknows? Yeah, we'll look at some scriptures. Is that an okay answer for now that we'll, we'll kind of get to it? I say we kind of get to it because it's not officially the purpose of today. So we may not give a thorough answer to it, but we'll at least touch on it, Lord willing, in the next few minutes. So the Socinians, I said they're non-Trinitarian. They're, they're, we think of their heresy as mostly Christological, so centering around Christ and the atonement. But their errors go way beyond that. And this, this error hits on God the Father, so theology proper here too, that they just deny all of it entirely. So... There's lots of overlap, I'm sure, between these three, but I think this is a helpful way to categorize this. So are there any Socinians today, do you think? Or Socinianism light, maybe, Keith? Yeah, okay, have you guys heard of that term? Open theism. Um, I don't know what happened 25 years ago. This was a big, big deal. I don't know what happened to all the, I don't hear about it. They're still there. They haven't gone away or recanted of their views. But um, so there's a more modern error or heresy, I think. Really big deal 25 years ago. The proponents of open theism claim to be Arminian, but I think they're more Socinian. Um, so they claim that if God knows the future completely, then the future must be fixed, and therefore man is not free. And so the whole thing, they just throw the whole thing out because of that, because that's their, that's their guiding principle. Cheryl? I was just going to say, this church really started out of some of that kind of teaching in, in our old denomination. Yeah. You know, that was teaching Can you give the God, third... God Yeah. Yeah. Can you give the thirty-second overview of how? I mean, why you say that that's this was the start of this church? Well, because uh, the professors at Huntington College, which was the, the, our old denomination's church college, they were bringing in one or two different professors who were teaching. You know. Two things, basically. You can get to heaven through any means, not only Jesus. And God didn't have foreknowledge. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He started the world, in, you know, he created the world and then just set it on, on its, which is basically he didn't foreordain, nor did he have foreknowledge. And mm -hmm. so, like the, the leaders, David and the elders, were saying, no, that's wrong. We can't, you know, mm -hmm. that's wrong. And they would not change it. And the denomination would make a stand against that teaching. So therefore, then we left. Yeah. So I think that's helpful that Cheryl pointed that out because this is, 
we can't just say that this is distant, it's far away from us and doesn't affect us. It, it does. There are people around that believe this, and, and it's no small thing. So we don't, we don't want to constantly argue with Arminians over predestination, right? I don't think that's particularly helpful. I've had a lot of those conversations, and some are good and some aren't. But um, everybody is somewhere on this spectrum. And the further you go down here, with the open theists, for instance, it really touches on all sorts of important things. And you very quickly end up, as Cheryl said, teaching that Jesus is not the only way to the Father. So, so then couldn't you start with, do you believe that the Bible is true? And you wouldn't have to deal with the rest of it. Maybe. That's a, <laughs> that's a provocative way to start. Although it's tricky when you have these singular verses that you can pull out that say things that look like that, you know? Yeah. All right, so I don't plan to come back to this, but um, let's, let's, for the rest of this lesson, let's think in terms of these categories, okay? And we'll start to look at scripture and, and talk about God and his knowledge of the future. Okay, so does anyone know the Old Testament sign of a false prophet? Okay. What he says doesn't happen. What he says doesn't happen. So there's a, there's a litmus test, so to speak, in the Old Testament. Well, it's right here. Um, if it doesn't come to pass, then it's not a true, he's not a true prophet. Let me step through this. There's a lot on here. I may not read the whole thing for the sake of time, but let's see how it goes. From Deuteronomy, for these nations which you will dispossess, listen to soothsayers and diviners, but as for you, the Lord has not appointed such for you. Okay? That's not how you're going to do it. It's Deuteronomy. This is at the very beginning, right? Way before King David, way before the, that system. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly goes on from there. So let's skip to the third paragraph there. And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak. Okay. So I am raising up a prophet, but if this guy comes along, if this guy comes along and speaks something that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. So then the question, the obvious question right after that, the Lord says, and if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? So that's a good question, right? He's saying, God's saying, listen to the one who comes from me. Don't listen to the one who doesn't. So he says, I know you're going to ask out loud or in your heart, you're going to ask, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? 
So here's the test. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So what does this presume about God's knowledge? If this is the test about whether a prophet is true, what does it presume about God's knowledge? That God knows, right? I mean, I'm stating the obvious here, but how can this be a true test? How can this be a test of a true prophet if God doesn't know? The, the, it's just presumed that God does know. A true prophet has God's words on his lips, so when when his prophecies predict future events, God's word gives him supernatural knowledge. This passage doesn't even consider the possibility that God could be an error or that God wouldn't know. So God's omniscience is the presupp presupposition here. In other words, this passage teaches that, that God's omniscience does extend to the future. Here's another. Knowledge of the future is also a test of other gods. In Isaiah, this section, but this whole, you can go a little before this, a little bit after, this whole section of Isaiah deals with it repeatedly. It contrasts the, the knowledge of God really with the absurdities of, of the false gods. So there's sarcastic stuff in this section of Isaiah. Just This section just really points out that false gods don't know the future, and God does over and over in this section. So there are, there are, really, there are so many examples of God speaking about the future, knowing the future. It, really, it's hard to pick examples. I picked a couple here to step us through, um, but they're everywhere. They're really everywhere. Messianic prophecies, um, throughout the minor prophets, prophecies of coming judgment upon other nations, the surrounding nations outside of Israel. Judgment on Israel, the bringing of Gentiles into the covenant, all kinds of passages. I'm sure your mind is swirling with lots more examples. So I picked a couple. Um, I also, let's just briefly look at another one in 1 Samuel 10. So this these two were big things, right? Um, crucial, um, world-changing prophecies. But then there's this section in 1 Samuel 10. Again, this is almost like I randomly picked. I could pick 20 just about off the top of my head. But this is from 1 Samuel 10. It says, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? Here, here it is. When you have departed from me today, you will find two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin. They will say to you, the donkeys which you went to look for have been found, and now your father has ceased caring about the donkeys and is worrying about you. Then you shall go on from there, come to the terebinth tree of Tabor. You see where I'm, I'm going to read a little bit more, but you see where I'm going with this. There's big stuff here. God knows the future. So he's foreordained the big things of human history. But there's so much detail here. There, three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. They will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, 
lots more verses here. All those tiny little details. I don't know how you can come away with anything other than the Augustinian view of God knowing the future. Big things, covenant things, judgment upon nations, messianic prophecies, and then the tiny little details of meeting people and loaves of bread and the number of loaves of bread. It's, it's pretty convincing to me. So, Yet there are people who deny that God foreknows and foreordains. Okay, so this is probably an oversimplification. Okay, so don't leave here feeling like you're armed with this one slide and so you can debate and argue with an open theist or an Arminian. This is scratching the surface. They, they're smarter than, than it's going to sound like they are, okay? But if we're going to rest on Scripture, um, I think we come down here. And uh, most of their arguments fall into one of these four categories, okay? So this isn't complete, but I think it is, it is helpful. And this is most of their arguments are going to land in one of these. Okay, so they'll say, well, God doesn't really know. He doesn't really know. He's merely announcing his own plans. This is what he intends to do. Or they'll come to a passage that's problematic for them. And they'll say, well, he's just speaking in very general terms that could be fulfilled, you know, any number of ways. Or because he knows a whole bunch of details and he's been around for a long time and he knows things from experience, then he can say that they're highly probable. So he's not foreordaining and he doesn't definitively know, but he has a ton of experience. Putting all that experience together, he knows what's highly probable. Or um, he's simply declaring what will take place if certain conditions persist. This is not a bad explanation for, for lots of passages, actually. So I don't have a big problem with that one. You can't apply it everywhere, but this is, this is the case in some places. So. Um, they don't deny that, that predictive prophecy exists, right? Because there are just so many places that teach that. They don't deny that it exists, but they're determined to not let foreknowledge, divine foreknowledge, destroy human freedom. This will be a theme in the, in the next week or two also. When you elevate that human freedom, what I'm calling libertarian free will, when that's your starting point, then you go places that scripture doesn't take you because that's your guiding principle. I guess what I'm saying is we don't want to be that type of Christian. So they don't deny that it exists, but they're driven by that libertarian mindset. Let's look at a couple examples. Okay. We just came through, as if you're in a small group, you just studied this a couple weeks ago, right? So from Genesis 15, here's this passage, God speaking to Abram, making a promise. 
So how would this fit into one of those four categories? Y'all had a chance to read that? Okay. How would that fit here? Would it fit under any of these? Is that merely God announcing his own plans? No. Very general terms. That's pretty specific, right? Announcing events that are highly necessary or probable. Now, I mean, this word given to Abram came about a thousand years before the fulfillment. One thousand years. We tend to lump my small group has talked about this. I don't know if yours has as we've gone through Genesis, but you know, Genesis takes up this much of, of the whole Bible, and so we kind of linearize the whole thing, but Genesis spans a long, long time. There's a thousand years between the Lord saying this to Abram and it being fulfilled. So Abram's descendants, they become strangers in Egypt because of the betrayal of Joseph by his brothers. Joseph's faith elevated him to a position of authority. After that, Jacob's decision to move everything to Egypt, rise of the Pharaoh, hostile to the Jews, this is all background information. All this stuff had to happen in order for this to be fulfilled. And there are tons and tons of free human decisions in there, right? So did, did God foreordain it? I think so. Did God foreknow it? Obviously he did, because he's, he's spelling it out here a thousand years before some of it happened. And if you think about everything that happened between this and this, it's just it's full of free human decisions. Then after that, the re return of Israel to Canaan is also complicated story full of free human decisions. So thoughts, I'm doing all the talking again. Is Any thoughts or questions about this? Yeah, Cheryl. I was thinking about Micah's question, and, and oftentimes I think people who refuse to see these things kind of skip over, you know, read certain portions of the Bible. And, and maybe you might say to someone, hey, would you be willing to read Bible with me with it and just with an open mind you know like open to see what does it really say mm -hmm. you know because sometimes I think they read with preconceived ideas and that colors all their reading you know yeah yeah I, I like that plan that's um, I've talked at a lot of people on this topic and it never gets Maybe. anywhere yeah. so <laughs> Okay, 10 minutes. Another example. Giving you a moment to read through that. Jeroboam reigned in the year right around 900 BC. Josiah so this is a prophecy about Josiah. 
Josiah came along in the 600 BC range. So this was given during the reign of Jeroboam, 900 BC. Josiah came along around 600 BC in round numbers. So this prophecy foretells an event that was 300 years in the future. Think of all the marriages, all the births that led up to this. It gives Josiah's name. No, this can't happen unless Josiah is devoted to the true worship of God, which is a free human decision, right? According to the libertarian mindset, if God didn't foreordain it and foreknow it, then all, these, all the births, the whole lineage leading up to this, then you get to Josiah. For this to happen, Josiah has to be committed to the true worship of the Lord. When, when you know, the temple discovery happens, um, discovering the law, I should say, and his decision to repair the temple, all the stuff, renewing the covenant with his people, the point is that these are all free human decisions, loaded with free human decisions. So I think this passage is a huge problem for anyone who says that God um, doesn't foreordain or foreknow. I think this passage clearly indicates he's foreordaining it, clearly indicates his foreknowledge of very specific things. So the open theist has to conclude the open theist and somewhere on the spectrum between the open theist or the Socinian and the Arminian. I think they have to conclude either that God doesn't know Josiah's decision ahead of time or that Josiah was not a free agent. And neither of those options are consistent with what they're teaching. So I, I think it's a real problem. Um, yeah. Sure. Um, I said they are, they have to conclude that God foreknew Josiah's decision, foreknew all this stuff, which they don't want to say, right? So either that or that Josiah was not a free agent. I'm not, can you say that again? So if God is telling this, was it through Isaiah? Mm -hmm. Then um, telling this to someone, then they could pass that information on down to their generations until a man named Josiah comes along and then he's supposed to. You know. Yeah, I mean, the name is probably the easiest part because all you have to do is find some old writing and okay I'm gonna name my kid Josiah that's the easiest part to overcome but all those other things in in there you know it's just lots lots of free human decisions so I think it's a problem for for that position I'm almost out of time I want to switch gears a little bit so that I can make sure I hit at least part of my last point um, there's this category in theology we call contingencies. 
So God knows not only what is actual in the past, present, and future, but he also knows what's possible. Bear with me for a second. I'm deciding which stuff to skip because we're not going to get there. Let me just introduce the idea. There's free knowledge and necessary knowledge. Free knowledge refers to God's knowledge of actualities, things that have actually happened or that actually will happen. So these are the things he's decided to implement, I guess, at some point in history. We call them free because creation itself is a free act of God. These are things he's free to do, but these didn't have to happen. These are things that he chose to implement. Um, Necessary knowledge is his knowledge of what is possible. Ultimately, what is possible is whatever's compatible with his own nature. We could spend all day on that, but since he knows his own nature, he knows all the possibilities because he knows himself, okay? But then there's this third category of contingencies. This is what would have happened if other things had happened differently. So you have contingency plans in your life, right? Can you think of an example of a contingency plan? Okay, so you have, it's a backup plan. It's not something you're counting on or hoping for, but it's kind of a backup plan. Um, Okay, so Jesus, for example, says the people of Sodom, if they had seen the works of Jesus, they would have repented. This touches on on this attribute of God's knowledge. Um, There are lots of places in Scripture where God says, what would have happened if if conditions other than what actually happened had happened. So I think contingencies gets filed under this. You could make it a third category, but these are in theology. I I know I'm blowing through this. Um, Just understand that these these categories exist and that in Reformed theology, we say that God does know the contingencies. And there are scriptures that talk about that. The Sodom one is the first one that comes to mind. But Jesus, in I think three or four different places, says this is what would have happened if something else had occurred. Yeah, sort of. I, I hadn't thought about that. Um, yeah, I think it, it would fit under one of these, yeah. All right, there are, um, I think I said on, on your handout, I think I used the word allegedly, so there are several passages that allegedly teach divine ignorance of the future. Um, if you look at these, though, they're, most of these are actually teaching divine ignorance of the present. So 
I think they prove too much if you go in that direction. And how would you refute these? I think they're more, these are more philosophical than exegetical. How would you, how would you refute this one, the Genesis 18? Okay. Weren't they all conversations too? So was God conversing, or except for the second one, maybe they were God was conversing with someone, maybe for the benefit of that person that was there. Yeah, and I think that goes hand in hand with what Keith is saying too. But yeah, he's, he's, there's some condescension, God, not in a negative way, um, condescending to converse. Good. What what else? Micah? Isn't Genesis written by Moses through his interaction with God? Okay. God's explaining it to Moses to write it is how he wrote it, whether it was through vision or conversation. Okay. So it's not happening in real time. It's God's you know, obviously perfect knowledge of the past. Mm-hmm. Okay. Ben? Makes me think of Jesus walking in the garden and Yeah. He doesn't know where they're at. But then, when they don't, you know, come out, he clearly knows. Mm -hmm. You know? And so, like, he goes through these, maybe not what you're looking for, but. No, I think so. You know, human processes, but then when they don't follow suit, you know, he has the answers. Yeah. Kevin? It's all these situations are sort of before God makes a judgment. And, uh, and, and it's like he's, he, it's like he cares about us, so he's sort of, it's not that he doesn't know, but he's sort of giving us a, the benefit of the doubt, uh-huh. like an opportunity to like be honest. Yeah. Those are all helpful, helpful thoughts. I, when I read this, I just picture myself sitting with, it's, well, sitting at small group, for instance. It'll happen tonight, I promise. Um, <laughs> talking to friends in the living room and you just hear the chaos going on in the basement. Okay, I may at some point reach my wits end and say, I'm going to come down there and find out what is going on. I know exactly what's going on. Okay, so I don't, there, I'm oversimplifying some of these. Again, I hate doing that because I don't want us to leave here thinking, oh, we have all the answers and these people are stupid. They're not stupid, but it's not, these are philosophical rather than exegetical arguments. There are pretty simple, straightforward explanations for all those problem passages. If someone wants to convince you that God doesn't know the future, I think as Reformed Christians, largely we can, we can just look at the passage in context and come away with a perfectly understandable and common sense approach to it. So my last point, I'm out of time. I just want to say that um, these arguments against God's omniscience are philosophical rather than exegetical. And when it comes to our faith, we don't want to be Christians who doubt something because we don't understand it. 
So the Arminians and the Socinians and the open theists, they're coming up with a workaround because they can't wrap their head around what Scripture is clearly teaching. And if they can't wrap their head around it, they're done with it and they're going to throw it out. Okay? So don't doubt something because you don't understand it. Go ahead, dive in, study it. Study it deeply, learn. Do all you can to understand it, but at the end of the day, it's good to know that some things are beyond us. And I would like us to just be comfortable with that. I don't know that I've always felt that way, but at this point, I'm perfectly comfortable to just bow before God and say, I don't have to understand it for me to accept it. I'll bow before you and I'll say, you know, and I don't need to know. Okay, so parents, don't raise your children to see faith as subservient to intellect. I say that um, as someone who's, I mean, my kids are in a classical Christian school and I think that's, that kind of stuff is great, but I don't want my children to have their faith be subservient to their intellect. So um, God's omniscient and we're not. It's a communicable attribute, as I said at the beginning, but we've gone off the rails if our pursuit of knowledge puts us in a place of doubt. Our pursuit of knowledge should build our faith and increase our faith. If you see yourself or you see your children learning and learning and learning and that putting putting them in a position to doubt and to question God, then it's time to course correct. All right, I'm two minutes over, so let me close. Father, thank you that you know. Thank you that you've given us the ability to know, but we will never approach you. So may we bow before you now as we enter into worship, all-knowing God who died for us, Pray that you would guide us now as we enter into that worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Truth in Life. If you enjoy this series, make sure to subscribe. And remember, this is truth to live by.